A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. It comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Five bucks Canadian. That'll buy you uh, a coffee. That might buy you a sandwich. Could buy you a beer. That's what we're asking for each month to give you this podcast to support the work that we do, everything that we do, our other podcasts, our news service, and we want to give you ad-free versions of Canada Land in exchange for that. It's really easy to help us out and become a member. Uh, just click on the link in the show notes or go to canadalandshow.com slash join, and you'll have your premium feed in a moment. Thanks very much. Hey, I'm off for this episode. Uh, we're going to present to you one of our very favorite episodes from our archives. Check it out. Even amid the chaos and catastrophe that is news journalism in 2019, the Globe and Mail maintains a brand of Canadian sobriety, respectability, and authority. None of their troubles in recent years have really put a dent in that reputation. Not Margaret Wente's plagiarism, not Leah McLaren lying about trying to breastfeed somebody else's baby while she was drunk, and not even the addition of color photographs. But the Globe's history... The good and the bad extends well beyond the five years that we've been covering this stuff. 175 years, to be exact. But there are less dignified moments in that history, and that's what we're here for. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Bonnie Ings, Brad Needham, Carmen Rose, Ariane Favreau, Brian Harrington, Bruce Cavers, Anne Ostrom, and John. Uh, my name is John, and I'm a teacher in Kitchener. 
and I support Canada Land because even though I know infotainment is kind of a icky word, Canada Land gives me news, but it also makes me laugh. Tell me who you are and what you do. My name is Jamie Bradburn, and I'm a writer historian specializing in Ontario and Toronto history. And newspaper history is one of my uh, pet interests, I guess. And Jamie, you've written this up as a piece for us on our, on our website. So if people are interested in reading more mm-hmm. about this, they can check out the article that we've posted by you on the Canada Land website. Yep. Jamie, right now, it's such a dramatic time in the newspaper business. It's a dramatic time for the Globe and Mail. We have our hands full just trying to cover what's going on there day to day. What is the relevance of, of their history to this moment right now? Like, why do you care about this stuff and why do you think it's useful for us to look at it today? I think it's useful to see how a newspaper changes and evolves over time and how it reflects the time periods that it's published in. It's been around so long. I mean, it's woven intricately into the history of the country. I mean, the founder, George Brown, was one of the fathers of Confederation. You can see the changes in the country, in the province, and in the city over the course of its 175-year history. I don't want to inflate it, but it's hard to think like in the States, there are very esteemed newspapers. Uh, perhaps they're more respected than the Globe and Mail, in, in, especially in a global sense. But in terms of like the Globe and Mail's brand being sort of on the same level as like the government of Canada, like it just feels like it is just sort of up there on the top echelons of like what Canada is. The top brands like Hudson's Bay Company, I suppose, though that's kind of showing its age. <laughs> the Globe is like it equals Canada to a lot of people. I mean, they they, they use the the red maple leaf. It's, it's, it's the same symbol for both. It's sort of a familiar, comforting presence on the newsstand. And I guess there's this sense that it's like sort of above the fray, but it didn't begin that way. And it wasn't that way throughout its history. And we're just going to go through some of these stories that you've Mm -hmm. you've collected for us. Tell me about the time the Globe and Mail launched as a propaganda rag. Mm -hmm. In 1844, the Globe was founded by George Brown uh, as an outlet for his views on what would become the clear grit movement, the reform movement, which would eventually evolve into the modern day Liberal Party. When it began, it was in a period where newspapers didn't necessarily have the best staying power. One of the things that was going for the Globe as well is it was sort of like the solid liberal paper, like as opposed to the Conservative Party, which was having troubles actually finding a newspaper, especially in Toronto, they could rely on to dependably infiltrate the news the way they wanted to see it. By the time we get to our first story in 1872, on the liberal side, you have the Globe, which is well established by this point. On the conservative side, the main paper for years had been one called The Leader, but its uh, owner, James Beattie, was starting to stretch himself a little too thin in doing everything from manufacturing leather to holding down a seat in Parliament Hill. And then there was The Telegraph, which was an upstart paper, which the conservatives thought they could control these guys and get their message through, but their owner, a guy named John Ross Robertson, was a little too hard-headed, so they ceased giving them any funding, and they would die during 1872. The conservatives are putting together a new newspaper called The Mail, Mm -hmm. which eventually will merge into the Globe and Mail years down the line. My understanding of the press back then is that the press and partisanship was, that's just what the press was. That's exactly what it was. Like, if the owner had particular leanings, you read his particular interpretation of the news. By the time you get to the 1880s, 1890s, you have a newspaper, which is also one of the current day Globe and Mail's ancestors, the Empire, which was just outright owned by the Conservative Party of Canada. In that context, it's almost inseparable, a political party, a political campaign from the newspaper that was promoting it. Luckily, This has been dramatized for us by the CBC (laughs) in the movie John A. 
birth of a country. We've made impressive gains, at least. Hell with gains, Gordon. We ought to be the government. Because we let Lower Canada have half the seats, no matter how much larger we get, a handful of Tories can join up with the French and Upper Canada gets robbed again. Write it down, George. The paper has to go out. All right. Make room on the front for 300 words, 400 more on page two. What do you want for the title? Unpopular conservatives hang on? Don't be soft. Turncoat Tories sell out to French again. So there they are in, 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 in top hats and vests and such. But, you know, that sounds more like the war room of a political campaign mm-hmm. than a newspaper. There's a couple things that I find interesting about this. Uh, the first being that this is before the popular press became a major mm-hmm. moneymaker. We think about like the Pulitzer and, and, and Hearst days. But once you get into the 20s and the mm-hmm. penny press, when it becomes a major economic force. Before that, and it's interesting the parallel with today, when newspapers aren't good at making money, they're good for something else. They're good for mm-hmm. pushing politics and, and partisan agendas. Yeah, and that was the irony of all this, because John Ross Robertson, one of the big lessons he learned from the failure of the Telegraph was don't rely on the party to make money. So when he launches the Evening Telegram four years later, he turns into a penny paper, relies on classifieds, and turns into a money-making machine almost immediately. The other thing that I find interesting about this is that the Globe's birth as... A liberal paper, and as newspapers themselves increasingly were trying to project themselves as independent mm-hmm. of political leaning, that amalgamation must have helped in that pursuit. Maybe you could tell me about the time that the Globe criminalized unions in Canada. <laughs> so uh, in 1872, in Toronto, among the unionized printers, there was an international movement called the Nine Hour Movement, which was fighting for workers to have a nine hour day as opposed to 10, 11, 12, whatever employees asked for it. George Brown himself had been very pro-union in some of his editorials, as long as it didn't involve his own employees. Like, he promoted, like, you know, unionism in Europe or the United States. A little closer to home, not so much. One of the things about Brown that often got him in trouble, both in newspapers and in politics, was he was quite headstrong, and he did not like anybody dictating to him how he should run his business. Right. He wanted to check union power. How did that play out? Because it wasn't just the, the impacts of his stance on that were not limited to unionization attempts at the Globe and Mail. Yeah. So, basically, the Toronto Typographical Union drafted up a list of demands to all the city's newspaper publishers at the time. So, the newspapers agreed on giving the night staff a raise, but wouldn't go for the nine-hour day. Uh The newspaper publishers, led by Brown, formed their own association called the Master Printers Association and quickly began putting ads across the province to bring in scabs to work in Toronto. The TTU, the Typographical Union, they had friends among railway conductors and such so that when the train got to Toronto, they would meet the potential hires, explain the situation to them, and then send them on the next train home. Is that a euphemism? Explain the the situation to them? Yeah. (laughs) So essentially, this was unions helping unions and saying, like, the scabs are coming on the train. They'd meet them there and say, get the fuck back on the train. You're going home. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. And this story, as you recounted for us in your piece, also tells us about just the incredible sway George Brown had Mm -hmm. over even the laws in Canada. Yeah. In his editorials, you know, he prints nasty stuff about the strikers, suggesting they're just a bunch of troublemakers. So on April 15th, 1872, there's a mass rally in Queen's Park, which drew uh, 15,000 people in support of the uh, nine-hour movement. So, simultaneously, George Brown manages to get uh, charges drawn against 24 of the strike leaders. 
and they're hauled in the court and they're basically told that forming a union is illegal because Canada was still operating under old British labor laws, Mm -hmm. which while they had been changed in Britain over time, had never been changed in Canada. So we were this anachronism where like on the books were laws saying that not just unions and the typographic Mm -hmm. typesetters, but unions were illegal. And George Brown was able to enforce that against his, his workers. Yes. And how long did that last for? Uh, it didn't last very long. Yeah. First of all, the leader, which is, say, was the struggling conservative paper, they decided to support the strikers and help them out, although wasn't entirely altruistic because the owner, James Beattie, his parliamentary seat relied on the labor vote. The new conservative paper, the Mail, which had launched during the strike, also offered itself up as a union shop. And then ultimately, uh, Sir John A. Macdonald, who hated George Brown, comes up with the Trade Unions Act, which protects the right to unionize and passes that federally. And the strike just sort of peters out. In the end, there's an editorial a couple months later where uh, Brown praises both sides of the dispute for acting in wise moderation. Very Canadian. Mm-hmm. It's funny. I remember the typesetters building on DuPont. I think they just knocked that down a year mm-hmm. or two ago, and there's like some condos going up there. Yeah, the old monolino, yeah. Okay, tell me about the time that the Globe led a Christian crusade against vice in Canada. <laughs> so George Brown is killed in 1880. Uh, you could partly attribute that to his poor HR skills. Uh, what do you mean? The story of Brown's assassination is basically there was a disgruntled employee who had been fired... Uh, he comes in the Globe office with a gun and is probably going to shoot whoever angers him first. And it happens to be Brown because he has to go up to Brown to get some papers signed and Brown keeps telling him to go away. So the guy shoots him in the leg. Okay. As a publisher, I'm taking note of this story. <laughs> uh, and then dies of medical complications a few weeks later. Uh-huh. So the Globe stays in the Brown family for two years until it's sold to a liberal-friendly group led by a man named Robert Jaffray, who eventually buys the paper outright and owns it until 1914, when his son, William Gladstone Jaffray, named after the British liberal prime minister, takes over. Now, 1914, Toronto is still in the height of the Toronto, the good era, where the city is basically a bunch of morally uptight pricks. So this is the the kind of like uh, tight-ass Protestant Toronto. But there were prudes, and then there was William Gladstone Jaffrey. He wouldn't print ads for tobacco, which, you know, you could see his foresight for, you know, health. But then he also wouldn't print ads for girdles, women's underwear, Mm -hmm. and sanitary napkins. He also, if there was a racing movie that came into town or a novel that the book reviewer wanted to review that was written by an atheist... Those properties had to be reviewed negatively. There could be no positive reviews of that sort of material. Okay, let's fast forward a few years. Tell me about the time that the Globe and Mail tried to launch a national fascist movement across Canada. Ah, the Leadership League. So backing up a bit to the Jaffray ownership, among the employees he had during that time was a young up-and-comer named George McCullough, Mm -hmm. who entered the newspaper industry when he was 16. Rises up to, by the time he's 23, he's assistant financial editor. And there is an urban legend uh, about McCullough that says that when he got fired in 1928, he vowed that when I next walk into this office, I'll be buying the paper right out from under you. I mean, this is uh, this is what Robert Fulford wrote mm-hmm. about McCullough. 
His life was a Horatio Alger success story that turned into a Scott Fitzgerald tragedy. George McCullough, founder of the Globe and Mail, was Canada's Jay Gatsby, and some people feared he might also turn out to be our Mussolini. <laughs> what is Fulford referring to there? Late 1936, McCullough, with the backing of mining executive William Wright, uh, buys the Globe, mm-hmm. which by that point in the market of four daily newspapers is number four. Then he buys the number three paper, it's Morning Competition, the conservative-leaning male and empire. Because he's sort of been a boy wonder on Bay Street, he's come so far. He's only 31 years old when he puts the papers together. He starts getting visions of being a puppet master, somebody who can work behind the scenes or use his newspaper as influence to help especially the mining executives run things the way they like. So McCullough though gradually gets disenchanted with all the political parties when he finds some people just they just don't follow his vision of the world or he can't manipulate them enough to do what he wants to do so in the early version of this in 1937 he proposes to premier hepburn and the ontario opposition leader earl Rowe, form a coalition government one party government and let some businessmen into the cabinet tell me about his campaign to create a one party I mean, a fascist government, yeah. a, a corp, corporate fascist government in Canada. How did that play out? So, but we get to early 1939, and he decides he needs to broadcast his views on how the political process should be changed. And and, and I think it's it's worth saying, you know, from the, the earlier anecdotes mm-hmm. uh, pre 20th century, now we're in mass media era where the, yeah. the news. This is sort of like a golden age for newspapers. Yeah, and also this is the point where the Globe and Mail it had been calling itself Canada's national newspapers since the turn of the century, but now it could have some legitimate claim to it because in around this time, 1938, copies are now being shipped around the country via the predecessor of Air Canada. Yeah. And, you know, this is when mass media is really showing itself and its mm-hmm. power. Like, may- maybe I can get every every voter on board yeah. with this. And especially at this time, because McCullough can't get Mackenzie King to do anything he wants, and he can't get the new federal conservative leader, Robert Mannion, to do anything he wants. So he starts writing these radio addresses, which he wants the CBC to broadcast. The CBC says no. Uh-huh. Somehow, though, McCullough does cobble together a bunch of private stations to air his talks emanating from CFRB in Toronto. The series of talks was called Let's Do Some Plain Speaking. So like a populist message, but he's trying to talk people into government by the virtuous. Yeah. The good, sound businessmen of this country, especially if they belong to the mining industry. So he starts revealing over these broadcasts what he would do if he had a chance to change things. And among them would be he would lower taxes. He would get rid of political corruption. Right. Drain the swamp. Drain the swamp. And eliminate provincial governments because they're a waste of money. Right. Right. There's a great quote from one of his broadcasts. Um, we do not need great brilliancy in the administration of public affairs. We require rugged honesty, clear purpose, tireless energy, and unswerving loyalty to principles which we, as citizens of average intelligence, can appraise fairly. He's, and he's speaking as the public there? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this is something that uh, June Colwood, a uh, legendary mm. journalist who uh, worked at the Globe and Mail, she said that it's interesting the way that people talked about these things back then. She said that George McCullough exuded sex. You might think that's a good thing, but then the, listen to the next part. The switchboard operator was a friend of mine, remembered Colwood. She would tip me off. The publisher is looking for you. And I would go hide in the washroom. 
That sounds like some early Me Too shit. Yeah, there's a lot of. I mean, he was once somebody who really liked to get, he liked to get along with his employees, but in his example like that, not necessarily in the best ways. Okay, so ultimately this didn't work over the radio, and he 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 used the Globe and Mail to try yeah. to get people to so, join his movement. So what happened actually was, as the broadcasts were going on, he the Globe and Mail was getting flooded with letters of support for his ideas. So he starts thinking, and by the time the last one airs on February 12th, 1939, he announces near the end of the broadcast he is starting a new initiative called the Leadership League, which would raise Canadians out of their stupor about politics and current affairs and get them more motivated to uh, be involved in government and also bring about his vision of what government should be. So the next day's Globe and Mail, I'd say out of the 30 pages in that edition, Eight of them are devoted to the Leadership League. Uh-huh. Every day after that, there's a dedicated Leadership League page in the Globe and Mail, plus there are often stories on the front page. And then there's this one section of it. Uh, it's called What Parliament Has Done. It appears every day and is a blank space. It's blank. <laughs> that's good. That's And that's, that's uh, you know, that's cheap content, too. Yeah. And the people who really weren't happy about this were the writers. There was a great quote I found uh, about one of the writers who was assigned to write the Leadership League material in the paper uh, named Roy Beamish. And here's what he had to say. What I did was slant the news. When a story came over the teletype that had some slight anti-liberal bias, I rewrote it to make that bias stronger. When Bassett or one of the others spoke, it was mandatory that the top writer cover it and God help him if he didn't gush. So why wasn't this a political party? McCullough preferred to be a puppet master and just pull the strings. And he was hoping to pass off the leadership of the Leadership League onto other people. And he managed to corral in a former lieutenant governor of Ontario and insulin co-discoverer Frederick Banting to hopefully be the guys who would carry this on. Uh huh. The Leadership League fiasco wound up costing McCullough somewhere over $100,000. Yeah. He was hoping for money from the business community and they didn't buy in. I mean, this sounds like one person's crackpot scheme, not not like a big conspiracy on the part of corporate Canada to take exactly, over the, the country. Exactly. How did it all end for George McCullough? In 1952, he's found dead in a swimming pool in Thornhill, just outside Toronto. According to Robert Fulford, he took his own life. Yeah. The reports at the time claimed it was a heart attack, uh-huh. but Fulford and several other sources since indicate it was likely suicide. And I guess the lay of the land in the wake of his passing is, you know, he, uh, he was unable to destroy the Toronto Star. Yep. That's a rivalry that continued through decade after decade at the sort of apex of the newspaper. Mm-hmm. And the ownership of the Globe and the Telegram goes its separate ways again after his death. Uh-huh. They're sold to different owners. Jamie, are we party poopers here? It's the Globe and Mail's birthday, for God's sakes. And here we are talking about all of the negative things in, in their history. If any institution lives to 175, they're going to have some bad days. Exactly. They're going to have some embarrassing stuff in, the, in their in their closet. What does this stuff tell us? Is, is, does it tell us anything about what the Globe and Mail is today? Is there, is there relevance to these stories as we look at what the Globe and Mail is in, in a modern context? I mean, it shows you how it grew, certainly. We can see echoes of, like, say, how they handled things at one time compared to how they handle things today. Yeah. And you can just sort of see, like, at various points, like, where it tried to wield influence or how it tried to wield influence. You could do a similar thing like this for any other, like, long-running newspaper in Canada because 
certainly in Toronto, for example, the star certainly has some skeletons in its closet. And, well, there's the entire story of the Toronto Sun. Well, we got to wait for their birthday for that. Yeah. <laughs> we should all live so Canada Land should live so long <laughs> that somebody could do a retrospective of every horrible thing we've ever run or, or, or done. <laughs> Okay, that was an episode of Canada Land. If you want to support it and get ad-free versions of it, uh, just click on the link in your show notes or go to canadalandshow.com slash join and you can have that in moments for five bucks Canadian a month. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send me. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. We have an Instagram account. It is Canada Land Show. This episode is produced by Kasia Mihailovich. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this you can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.